Christ Church, it's good to be back with you. Uh, I think I was last here in 2019. A few things have happened since then. Tom Brady won another championship, but it was for a team in Florida, right? We've had a pandemic. You've had a renovation that looks wonderful, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This morning, we want to give attention to the next passage as you work your way through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? O Lord, to whom else shall we go? You alone Hold the words of life. And so we pray, O oh God, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I suspect each of you at some time has received that gift. Perhaps it's a, a new phone or it's a new tablet. And you open the box and you expectantly take it out. You read some of the specs there and you see that it's going to run faster. The battery's going to last longer. You turn it on. You see that there are apps, there are features that are new and they go beyond what you've known and they promise all sorts of efficiency, all sorts of opportunity, a host of ways where you can have enjoyment or productivity beyond what you've yet known. But I suspect all of you have also experienced what I and I think every electronic user has from time to time, the struggle of seeing on that screen your battery reach zero. Knowing that the bells and whistles are no more, the productivity it has tanked, and the excitement, it is over. Normally this occurs in a car trip with children just about 30 minutes before you get to your destination, right? Um, we know the promise 
of remarkable technological capacity. And we know the importance of being able to power it up. The significance not only of having a capacity, but having the sustaining power that it would continue to run. It's no good if I possess a tablet or a phone and it is not at all charged. It's dead to me. It won't enhance my day, my work, or my play. And friends, as we consider the Christian life, we consider all the remarkable ways in which Christ changes, converts, opens up, and transforms life. The way in which he forgives, the way in which he frees. And similarly, we see that it is crucial not only that we start in a promising and delightful way, but that our life is sustained over the long haul. I think of this same Paul who wrote to a church in Galatia that was struggling years into its mission. And he addressed them frankly. He said, oh foolish Galatians, he said in chapter 3 verse 2. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now continuing by the flesh? They'd lost their power. They'd failed to be sustained by that faith with which they began. And as you consider what you heard last week, the first several verses of chapter 4 here, it's a lofty calling and it's a long race to which we as sisters and brothers are called. We are given so many blessings, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. And yet we are called to walk worthily of the calling to which we've called. We are called to walk with humility, with patience. We're called to walk with gentleness and we're called to walk in a way that bears with one another in love. Those all cost. Those all tire. Those all make us bone weary. And yet we're called to walk on in a way that is worthy of that original converting call that Christ has given to us. How shall we do it? This morning, I think Paul offers us remarkably good news. He offers us hope and confidence for the days ahead. He offers us a promise and a vision of how we will not only start the Christian life as these young ones have, but we will continue to be sustained over the long haul in the Christian life. That God's grace is continuing, not just converting men and women to Jesus Christ. Well, let's consider the ways in which this passage opens up our imagination and helps us to see how God's grace is a present tense reality. I want to suggest this morning that we do well to be alert to the present tense of the gospel. Now we rightly look backward and we've just professed our faith with women and men around the globe and through the ages confessing our faith that Christ has come, he has died, he's descended to hell, he's risen from the dead, he's ascended on high, he has done those things once and for all. And we can celebrate what he accomplished in that glorious 33-year run here on planet Earth. And it's appropriate that we find assurance and confidence there and peace with God. And it's 
terribly important that we look forward as the creed also beckons, that we would anticipate that day when death will be no more, when there will be a resurrection yet to come and it will be glorious and there will be no sin, no shame, there will be no splintering and schism, for God will be with all and will be all in all. And so it's right that we consider that future tense of the gospel, our blessed and final hope. But friends, we sometimes forget the gospel in the present tense. We sometimes think as though we live simply between two appearances of Christ, during which he's effectively on sabbatical, something that means a little more to you than to most perhaps right now. We tend to think that perhaps he ran a great lap back in the first century and he's resting up and he promises to come and finish the job at some as yet undefined time in the future, but that we live in an absent age and a time between those times when his presence, his grace, his compassion is operative. And there are reasons we can think that. We read the New Testament, perhaps nowhere as powerfully described as the epistle to the Hebrews. Chapter 1 begins by recounting the wonderful ways in which God has in the past worked through that son. Long ago, many times and in various ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken through his son. And it tells us there in verses 3 and 4 that having made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It speaks of the finality, the completion of his work. A priest could never sit. They always stood attentive because there was always more sin to be purified. There was always more intercession to be made. And so it's a remarkable claim that Jesus, the great high priest, he sat down because unlike any other, he had fully and finally, once and for all, made purification for sins. And so we often think, as Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. And we often think that in every which way. It is finished. All of his work is finished. Not just his work on the cross, not just his work of offering sacrifice, but all that he does for us is finished. But friends, I want to remind you of another story, not in Hebrews 1 and not in Ephesians 4, the story of one of the first deacons, the Christian church, and the first martyr of the entire Christian church. Stephen, if you remember the account of Acts 6 and 7, those of you who might be asked to serve in the diaconate in the future, take note. He gets martyred really quickly, so know what you're buying, right? Uh, he has been enlisted in this office of serving in the church. Persecutors come. In Acts 6, Stephen offers a remarkable account of the hope that he has. He tells one of the most glorious gospel stories, going back to the earliest parts of the Old Testament and speaking of God's faithfulness and steadfast love. It doesn't get him out of the jam. And as the rocks fly, Stephen is able to die a Christian. He doesn't tap out. He doesn't recant. He doesn't go weak-kneed. Stephen is able to die as a Christian, a profound martyr or witness to the faith, the glorious resurrection faith of Jesus, 
because we're told in Acts 7, he looks into the clouds and he sees Jesus in the heavens. And we're told there that Stephen sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God the Father. Now Jesus sits, having made purification for sins. He sits as one who has been sacrificed once and for all. But friends, it's important to know that he stands too. Jesus stands with a sister or a brother who bears up under persecution. Jesus stands watching, alert and attentive, mindful of our struggle, aware of our persecution and our suffering. Jesus stands to offer encouragement and comfort and presence. Jesus stands in the present tense because he is now the Lord and Savior of a people. Let's see how Paul, in our passage this morning, looks back to our psalm reading of this day, Psalm 68, and he sees witness to what Jesus now is doing as he is active at the right hand of the Father. Psalm 68, as was read for us, is a victory psalm. It is a a story of triumph as God's people have seen their army go out and fight and they return victorious. This is the way you want things to end. Psalm 68 describes the troops coming back in parade. It describes people coming out from the capital city. It describes them lining the streets raising their hands, lifting their voices. It describes a victory chant as the troops follow the king all the way into the city and to the throne room. It describes prisoners of war who are brought back the spoils of their triumph from afar. And Psalm 68 goes on to speak of how this victorious Davidic king who has conquered his foes elsewhere returns and he sits enthroned and triumphant right where he belongs on the throne governing Israel and we're told last that emissaries and ambassadors they have been sent from the nations to give gifts to show their favor and respect for all that he has accomplished Now, it doesn't take a lot to begin to see, if you've read the gospel accounts, ways in which this sounds an awful lot like bits and pieces of the story of Jesus. Jesus who comes in triumphal entry. Jesus who we're foretold will eventually see every knee bow and every tongue confess. Not only in his own capital city, but from every tribe, tongue, and nation that he alone is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But friends, it's fascinating to observe that Paul, Jewish, scribal, educated Paul, switches something. One line here, the last line that he quotes, is inverted or flipped. In Psalm 68 we hear, that having triumphed abroad and returned home, men come from abroad, ambassadors and emissaries, to give gifts to this king. And that's what you do. When someone's inaugurated to office, when someone has a 
remarkable triumph, you seek to curry favor. You show respect. You send a secretary or an ambassador to represent your government, to maintain good diplomatic relationships, to hopefully keep them from attacking you next. So we're not surprised when we read that in Psalm 68, but we would be surprised if we knew the psalm well and we heard Paul say that having ascended on high and having sat down on his throne, now he gives gifts. Now Paul is not correcting the psalm. And I know that because in Philippians 2, Paul will say what the psalm actually says. That being exalted on high, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. He will speak of the way in which near and far humans alike will confess with one voice that Christ is Lord. They will give that gift of glory, laud, and honor to the Redeemer King. Paul doesn't deny that. But Paul wants you to know something greater than the psalmist stated. He wants you to know that having triumphed, having been raised and exalted on high, having reached the climax of his achievement, this king is not done. This king has not graduated. He has not been promoted beyond service and compassion and grace and care. Jesus continues to give and to give and to give. And he gives now not kneeling on the floor and washing feet. He gives from heaven on high. He gives with all authority. He gives exalted beyond our wildest imagination. But he gives just as graciously and generously. So that the kind of mercy, the kind of compassion that we read he showed for Lazarus, for his disciples, for the overwhelmed mother or father, for the outcast. He looks upon his people now in the same way. In the present tense of the gospel of Jesus Christ, though he has completed his sacrificial offering, he continues to offer grace and mercy, peace and compassion, provision and strength to his people day after day. That's good news that we need, friends. This is why in this and other like churches, when you read our book of church order, the first thing you read is that Jesus Christ is Lord of the church. It's not like what you read on a plaque in a building. This, this was built, this was erected because of the, the work, the donation, the care of so-and-so. This was a person who was pivotal to the startup, the founding, the early years of the first phase of a project or people, of a building or an institution. When we say Jesus Christ is Lord of the church, we don't speak simply of the fact that he was the entrepreneur, that he did the startup. We speak in the present tense, even now this morning, Jesus is placing his name upon followers who come to the waters of baptism. 
Jesus is coming to meet you weary and to provide grace to strengthen you as you come to his table. Jesus even now offers his word, life-giving words that reach right to your heart, providing direction and encouragement, comfort and hope. Jesus is this very moment and in every Christian moment the most interesting person in the room. And friends, that changes everything if there is good news for the present tense. I want to suggest briefly three ways, and I'm mindful it's a long morning, so really three ways that Jesus' present tense compassion and care changes the way we go about our days. First, we see that Jesus is here, and Jesus being here changes expectations. Jesus being active changes expectations. I'm reminded of an occasion living in South Florida when my oldest son went shopping with my wife and myself. And we were at a store in a mall, and he was always a runner. He loved to run, still does. And on one occasion, he was about one and a half, two, he takes off as soon as we hit the central area of the mall. And my wife and I decide we're just going to let him go. We're going to watch him, but we're going to allow this to be a learning experience. So we drifted to the side, and we let him run. And he ran, and the arms were outstretched, and he was cruising along, and he was making circles. He was running around a fountain. He was mystifying other people who didn't know what was so exciting in the middle of this mall until that moment where it dawned on him that he was completely alone. And he paused, and he stopped, and you could see panic. You could see panic because he didn't know where he'd begun, and he didn't know where mom and dad were. Aren't we all that way? So often we want to have freedom, blue water. We want to be able to go the way we want to be able to go. We love to know that we have options. We delight in feeling that the future is ours to make of it what we will. It's been graduation season, and goodness, don't we oversell how anything and everything can be yours as we talk to every graduate, right? We pass on the gospel of Seuss and the like. But don't we realize that the flip side of that, if everything can be yours, then everything's up to you. And eventually, eventually, the possibilities are limited to what you and you alone can make of them. And goodness, if we're honest, we can't do all that much. Our powers are limited. Our perception is small. Our capacity to change the world, even to change ourselves at times, is far more modest than we'd like to admit. But friends... You're not the most interesting person in your story. You're certainly not the only or primary person in your story. Jesus watches on high. We read here, we read in verse 7, before he turns to Psalm 68, Paul say this. He says, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. 
as he speaks of him giving out gifts from heaven's throne room, he speaks even more specifically of how Christ is measuring out for each and every one of us. He says this to churches that he has not, he has not met. Jesus has not been to Ephesus or to other churches there in Asia Minor where this letter would circulate. And yet Paul says to those Christians, years after Christ has ascended, he says, Christ knows you. Christ sees you. Christ measures out the precise grace that you, Christian, need. That opens up possibilities. That expands what is possible. That creates such hopeful confidence that we can have more than we could muster, doesn't it? So we see first and foremost that this opens up possibility and it expands what our lives can be. We see secondly that this strengthens us for that journey. Strengthens us for that journey. In verse 10, he says finally as he wraps up talking about this quote from Psalm 68, He says, this is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Think about the way you imagine grace. The way you imagine grace. So often, if we're honest, I think we think of grace as a subsistence provision. Grace is about keeping you from tapping completely out and dying. Notice the extravagance. Notice the generosity and liberality with which Paul describes Jesus' posture toward you and to me. He is all the way exalted in the heavens. He is in the most glorious and high of places And he is there to fill all things. He's concerned for all things, first of all. That means every person, every place, every time, and every nook and cranny of your life. He's not merely interested in your eternity. He cares for your daily provision and bread. He asks you to pray for it in the Lord's Prayer. He's not merely interested in your heart or your mind. He cares for your body, for every facet of who you are. He's interested at the end of all things in resurrecting you entire. His concern is as global and wide as could be, but it's also as good and full as we could imagine. He isn't simply going to pass something on to all things. He's not simply going to make sure everybody's got a consolation prize of sorts. He's going to fill all things. Now, I know we're not supposed to be prosperity Christians, and there are good reasons for that. But sometimes we can overreact to really bad ideas. And we can miss out on what we're actually meant to care about, what God actually cares about. And the problem with prosperity Christianity is not that it's too big a notion of what God wants for you. It's that it's far, far too small. It's concerned with your bank account, with your job title, with the square footage of your house, or the size of your 401k. Not that 
Shelter doesn't matter. Not that employment is not to be concerned with. But those are far too small for our God. He's concerned not only with providing shelter, but with growing you. He's concerned not only with providing opportunity for you to work, but in showing you all the ways he works for you and in you and through you. We are called to a more expansive vision of the blessing and the care that God has for his people. And Paul uses the language of filling here. It appears earlier in chapter 1 and again in chapter 3. It's one of Paul's signature moves, writing to the Ephesians to speak of the goodness of the gospel. That this is not about passing on a small stick of beef jerky to somebody who's hiking a trail so that they've got a few more calories to eke it out the last few miles. This is an image of God wanting to provide a rich and full meal so that we can experience life to the full. And he's gone all the way to the heavens to make sure that it's possible. What we see here is that knowing that Christ is active, knowing that Christ continues to give grace in the present tense, not only widens our expectations for what life can be, but it shows us how we're meant to be strengthened, how Christ longs to provide for and fill us in every way. We see one of those named right here, specifically in verse 11. There are other gifts of Christ from on high, but one that's named here is that he gives officers of the church to minister his word to his people. It names them apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers to provide his word, his life-giving, sustaining word. We see this in other ways where he longs that you would grow and flourish, that every part of your life would be shaped by his sustaining word. Third and finally, we see here also not only that this is meant to widen our expectations for what life can be, to give us confidence that we can be sustained and given strength for the journey, but it's also meant to name a goal. Christ is not, Christ is not absent, and he's sure not inert. He is present and active, and he is just as concerned with what you are becoming as what he has named you. He is not a father, and this is worth saying on a day where we mark Father's Day. He is not a father who named a child and then went absent. And some of us can see a dim reflection of the goodness of Christ, who in Isaiah was named Everlasting Father for his fatherly care the Messiah would show his people. Christ is one reflected in the dim goodness of earthly fathers. And he's one, some of us, some of you, who didn't have a good earthly father or didn't have a father around. That longing, that ache, that speaks to what he means to fill. To the fact that you're made to yearn for that kind of caring and provision. Someone who would watch and be mindful. Someone who would be present and never absent. Someone who would be steadfast and faithful. And we see here that part of that, part of that care is that Christ has a goal for us. Many of us in all sorts of areas of life, we can wonder what are we doing? Where are we going? 
For the Christian, in the biggest sense of things, we have direction that the world cannot offer. We are to be built up. We are to grow up, we're told here, in Christ in every way, to maturity, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. As he embodies the Beatitudes, so we are to grow into that. As he is the picture of the fruit of the Spirit, so we are to share in that life. As he prays the Psalms as no one did with blood earnestness, so we are to participate in taking up those his prayers. We are to grow up in every way into Christ, who is not absent, who is not distant and aloof, but who is present to form us. As we read on, as his body functions properly, each element working in its own way, Christ builds up or grows that body. He is as interested in our maturity. He is as interested in our growing up as he is in our conversion and our beginning well. And so, we see here that there is good news. Good news for a greater hope than we might imagine. Good news for a Christ who offers to fill and strengthen us along the way. Good news that we have purpose and direction. Something great we're made for. And friends, as we prepare to come to his table, I hope we also know we have deep hope. Hope is not optimism. It's not simply that we would think, well, I guess I'm better than I I used to think. Thank goodness I'm not as bad as I'd imagined I was. Hope is not just the Christian answer to pessimism. It's not just an optimistic word. It's a reminder of a promise from above that we are not alone, that we are not left to our own selves. I remember as a high schooler, I was an athlete, and I played a number of sports before, and I'd played in front of large crowds and was quite used to that. But in my senior year, I ran track. More specifically, I ran the last race of every track meet, the 4 by 400 meter relay. And I remember feeling an angst and a worry in that event that exceeded every other athletic experience I'd had, even pedestrian normal track meets. Small crowd, insignificant results, didn't matter. As the race approached, I would get so anxious, even nauseous, before each and every one. I'd played in front of hundreds, if not thousands, in some basketball games of greater consequence, but here and only here, nerves set in like nowhere else. And it was only halfway through the season where I realized finally what on earth was going on, why I was so worried about less than a minute of carrying a baton around a track. It's because for the first time in my life, I realized I was playing an individual sport. Now, a relay, you might think, is a team sport, but it's not, because as soon as my teammate handed me that hot potato, he was off the track, and I was off running, and everybody was looking at me and only me to make up a lead or to not screw it up. Whereas in basketball, I always had four other guys and a coach yelling. Here, I knew that I was alone and no one could help me for those precious seconds. Here, I knew 
that winning and losing depended only on me. And here I knew anxiety like I'd experienced nowhere else. I want to suggest that we often experience that spiritually. We think great, race, great laps have been run. Christ, he ran it perfectly. And the apostles had their screw-ups, but goodness, they had great stride. And perhaps your grandparent or your parent or a pastor you've known in the years behind you, they were such an example. And they ran well. And often we feel now the baton's in our hand. And everyone's watching. And there's no one to lean on. There's no help coming. You've got to make up distance. You can only fail. Friends, that's why the hope-giving word of the gospel, that Jesus is alive, he's enthroned, and he is still just as concerned for his people. He is still just as active with his grace is such life-giving news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. You know where we come from and you know to where you will take us. Grant us your grace. Minister to us your mercy and peace as we prepare to come to your table. May we experience a new reminder that this would signify Christ's goodness, that we might share more fully in him, that this would point to his mercy, that we might participate more and more in the kingdom of your beloved son. We are yours. We have nowhere else to go. May you show us your grace and mercy this day, O Christ. Amen.